0: Welcome everyone, I'm Lady and I'm Alana. And this is Pookery. Uh welcome, welcome everyone. Welcome to Cult Two Electric Boogaloo. Alana, welcome. How are you doing?
1: You. Oh, I'm doing, I'm honestly doing just fine.
0: I'm so excited that we have cult, like you said, number two for season one. What the heck? I know that the season of the cult, uh, it's my last episode for the season. This is my, this is it. But not to worry, because in typical lady fashion, I have a problem with episode length. <laughs> so this is a two-parter. I'm letting you guys know now, this is going to be a two-parter, because there is no way that I can talk about one of my favorite subjects and not make it at least a two-parter. And just like Bonnie and Clyde, it got dicey there and I thought it was a three-parter for a hot second, but no. (laughs) I've I've condensed my notes kind of comfortably, so we are going to swing right into Cult 2 Electric Loogaloo. but just giving you guys a heads up, it is a two-parter, so like, don't be surprised at the end when I go, and that's where we're ending part one. Sounds good. Yeah, so I guess the question that I should start my episode with is... What cult I'm doing. So today, yes. we're going to be discussing Rajneesh Purem. Does that name ring a bell? Can you say it one more time for, for Big Fudge? Rajneesh Purim. Mm, nope. That does not sound familiar to me. It might just be the name. I'll give you a little bit of context and see if that like, rings any bells. Yeah. So Rajneesh Purem was a religious commune that was set up outside a small Oregon town in 1981 it's an 80s cult classic cult era 80s okay okay uh, still not ringing any bells but keep going keep going. okay um we're like most of this is most of what the cult did is from 1981 to 1985 so that's kind of the the big time frame but we're also going to be talking about who they were before they moved into oregon uh, we're going to talk about them moving in. We're going to talk talk about, about how the locals treated them and how they started clashing with the locals and the acts that they committed to try and wrestle the town into their control. Oh, It's a, a bit of a wild heck and ride. Uh, so hold on to your butts. But it is, it is, it's a fun, well, it's, it's a, it's a wild cult. It's, it's a cult that I hadn't heard of previously. This is actually a new one that came onto my radar recently. It was actually suggested by my mother um, and she watched a documentary on Netflix called Wild Wild Country, which I highly recommend. I watched it for majority of my notes. This is actually my primary source for this. It's a six part uh, series that documents their entire timeline and everything that they did. It has interviews with survivors on both sides. It has people from uh, from Oregon. It has people from the cult. It has interviews with like, t- like politicians, lawyers, businessmen, everyone involved we'll talk a little bit more about it at the end like just kind of like who it kind of pulls on but first things first we must talk about the cult leader yes how it all started yes so what is a cult without a cult leader so our cult leader oh actually before we even get into that i'm also going to say a lot of there's a lot of name changes throughout my story so there's a lot of characters who we're born with a name, then they change the name, then they change the name again, then they change the name again. So I'm going to be referring to them them as their names when they change them. So I'll start with like their birth name, then I'll switch to like, this is what they change their name to next, and then cover the history that way. Just so you can kind of understand like the timeline. And then, yeah, everyone will kind of settle where they lie. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Perfect. Right. So let's talk about our cult leader. So Chandra Mohan Jain was Born on the 11th of December 1931 in a small village in Bareli, Madhya Pradesh, in India. Okay. He was the oldest of 11 children and was raised with his maternal grandparents until he was seven. That was when his grandfather passed away, so then he went back to his birth parents uh, in Gadawara, India. He was described as a gifted and rebellious student and was also known as a formidable debater. Uh, he was also very critical of traditional religion, I think at the time it was Hinduism. He instead favored techniques that expanded his consciousness, such as breath control, yoga, meditation, fasting, hypnosis, and the occult. All right. Yeah, he was also an avid reader, but after showing interest in writings of Marx and Engels, he was quickly branded a communist and threatened with expulsion from school. All right. <laughs> <clears throat> so all this happened before he turned 19, and also keep in mind that, that, that those are like the primary years from 1940 to 1950, so the Cold War, BB. <laughs> so any sort of mention of interest in communism, in Marx, in, like, you were pretty much branded from the get-go. So, 1951, at age 15, he began studying at Hitkarini College in Jipalpur, but he soon transferred to D. N. Jain College he was also apparently so argumentative that he was not required to attend any college classes. And he only had to show up for exams. And I don't know if that's a thing. This is also that these are his words. So I don't know if that's true,
1: but... That is an interesting, like you said, they're like, we just don't need you to come. If you can learn the material,
0: just come for the exams. That's the required stuff. It's a pretty sweet deal. But it's also like this, this kind of shows that... If he didn't want to do something, he didn't have to do it. And it's kind of a consistency through his life is that he was just so argumentative and he was so like stubborn in a weird way that people just like didn't. They were like, sure, you do what you want. And I think that's a big reflective of kind of what happens later in typical cult leader fashion. But it's just something I noticed kind of throughout his childhood is a lot of I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. People made accommodation, so I didn't have to do it. Well, all right yeah um he used this new abundance of free time to work as an assistant editor at a local newspaper so around this time he also began speaking at the annual sarva dharma samilan which is a meeting of all faiths uh, it was also held in jabalpur and it was organized by the Terenpasi jain community which chandra was born into uh, he also vehemently denied his parents' request to marry. So he was like, mm, constructs of marriage and religion, not for me. No, thank you, BB. <laughs> so, uh, later, he stated that he became spiritually enlightened on the 21st of March, 1952, at age 21. And I'm just going to be honest with you. If a 21-year-old says that they have become spiritually enlightened i'm not gonna believe them i'm gonna question that shit that uh, that doesn't seem right to me i feel like that you don't you don't even know what life is like you don't even know what the world is like at that point how can you become spiritually blind uh according to him he had a mystical experience while sitting under a tree it does it for nature man you know and i almost wonder based on like how the cult goes i wonder if he lost his virginity on that date oh okay he had a spiritual experience underneath a tree. He had a, a mystical experience while under a tree at age 21. Yeah, all right. Kind of adds up. That, yeah. I don't know. That's speculation on my part. I don't know. It's not in any of his biographies, but that... Hmm. It, it Maybe that's something...
1: Yeah, like something he didn't want to like actually admit, but also was just like, that date meant a lot to me. Yeah, Changed that was life. a good day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that tree. Good tree. Good. <laughs> good tree. <laughs> all right. Yeah, so... Uh, in 1955, he completed his B.A. in philosophy at D.N. Jain College, and he pursued his M.A. in philosophy at the University of Sagar, which he completed in 1957 with a distinction. He then secured a teaching position at Raypur Sanskrit College, but he was asked to transfer shortly after by the vice chancellor because he was considered a danger to his students' morality, character, and religion. That's a lot of things. That's a lot of things. That's a that's a cult leader.
1: <laughs> that's a lot of things. That's not just like, hey, he's kind of a like a bad teacher. Like they're like, no, he
0: is a th- he's an actual threat. He's a motherfucking threat. That's what he is. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's, yeah, a danger to students' morality, character, and religion. Like, whew. Okay. so he was then hired as a lecturer in Jabalpur University in 1958 because I guess they didn't read the termination records. Yeah. Uh, and he was then promoted to a full-time professor in 1960. Okay, wow! Got to check your references, guys. Pro tip: if you're hiring people, yeah, please like check check their check their line of work. <laughs> so at this point, he was considered an exceptionally intelligent man who had overcome the deficiencies of his small-town education all right i'll also say like during this time like the caste system was really in place so if you guys don't know like the indian caste system it's a lot of like different layers So like you have like the nobles and you have like the scribes and you have like the merchants and like everyone is kind of broken up into castes and so being poor or being like from like the poverty area it was like it was like you were dirt like people like the dirt people walked on was better than you were so it's very hard to rise above that then i'm assuming it was, yeah, getting, like, moving from caste to caste, very, very difficult. So the fact that, like, he came from this small town, and he, no, he, I don't think he was poor in any regard, but I think that he was of a lower caste. And so people like were celebrating, like, oh, you know, you're very, you're very smart, and you're very intelligent, and you're very opinionated for someone who came from that sort of distinction, so. Interesting, okay. Something to keep in mind. So, at the same time that he became the professor, he started traveling through India under the pseudonym Acharya Rajneesh so acharya means teacher and rajneesh was a childhood nickname and we recognize rajneesh because of course the cult that we're talking about is called Rajnish puram oh well that's it. not an ego thing at all no it all comes from a childhood nickname all right yeah so while he was traveling he would give speeches about gandhi socialism and institutionalized religions Okay. By 1969, he was given full-blown speeches about how socialism socialism and capitalism were intertwined and that poverty shouldn't be worshipped as a more, uh, more spiritual state and that India should revolutionize and build great wealth and change the way that they conducted religion. So, you know, really, really small topics. Yeah. Right off the yeah, wow. He
1: Like, zero to a hundred real quick for that guy. He went from, like, small teachings to, like, let's revolutionize!
0: Pretty much. But I also, like, I kind of get it, you know, Being the eldest of a family of, like, 11 kids. Yeah. Being the eldest male as well. And he doesn't... Like, he's like, you need to marry. You need to be a good Hindu. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to live this way. And uh, for someone who's been told, like, he he doesn't want to do things and people make those allowances so he doesn't have to do these things. I'm sure that that felt very... Like, it felt very suffocating. Yeah, Like, I don't want to marry. I don't want to be a Hindu. I don't want to... Do this. I don't want to be a, a teach these things. I don't want to conform to what everyone else has to do. I want to just do this. So instead, I'm going to talk about communism because it's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, it's one of those words. Like, if I was someone in this neighborhood and I was here at these talks, I would be like, you know. Maybe he's got a point. Honestly, I know.
1: I'm like sitting here, kind of like, I can, I understand. Like, I, it's weird, like, looking at these cults at like the very beginning because you're like, how did these people get sucked in? But then, like, you really like dive into what they're saying at the beginning and you're like, it's not that bad. Like, it's really not that bad at the beginning. Like, it just gets worse. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like where we are at the beginning, perfectly fine. The steps that we took <laughs> to ensure it, ugh. that's the problem. That, that that's the problem. That's, that's the issue. It's, we had that as well with, um, and Hamilton Byrne, mm-hmm. where at the beginning I was like, let's make her president. Like, she's, like, she's pro-LGBTQ. Like, she's she's this, helping, she's like, this. unhappy
1: women leave their marriages and stuff. Like, like you said, she's, like, leading this, like, little revolution. And, like, how can you be against that? It's it's when we start to get into, like, oh, I'm God. Okay, well. Yeah, like, oh, you're God, you're kidnapping children?
0: Ooh, <laughs> that's
1: take a step Yeah, so it's hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, so it's, it's definitely one of those where, like, the cult throughout its life does make a lot of good points. Yeah. But you've gotta remember that they are a cult. Yeah. And at the end at the end of the day it's a cult they did cult things and no matter the intentions, bad decisions were made. Yeah. So I'm saying this with no like forethought yeah. of the future. I have I'm just no like, idea what we're. I don't know where into, we're headed. So. I'm
1: just like right now, things don't sound that
0: bad. <laughs> but I can only imagine it gets worse, or else we wouldn't be talking about it. So yes, if this is where we stop, we would not be talking about this. But unfortunately, it's a two-parter, so you know that they do a lot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Perfect. So. Yeah, so he yeah, he was all he was all about let's talk about revolutionizing india. Let's celebrate wealth. Let's like let's become a first world nation. Let's take after the US. Let's take after the UK. Let's let's follow Europe and America's footsteps because they they got something figured out that we don't. So, naturally, he was a controversial leader. But he became very popular amongst businessmen and merchants, you know, the high wealth, you know, revolution like, you know, industrialize. And of course, businessmen and merchants, they have money. So he actually began holding in- individual consultations for spiritual development and transformative practices. Wow. In exchange for donations. I was going to say how much was he making from this scheme? It sounds <laughs> too good to be true. I think I think if I remember correctly it was like a like a really small flat fee where you could like sign up. Okay. But then during the the service it was encouraged that you would donate to further your spiritual awakening. Yeah, the more you donate the closer you are to God, baby. The more you pay, the better you are. <laughs> yeah, so It gives you a better seat, you know, in the house of God. You know. In 1962, he began leading meditation camps. So that would be like three to ten sessions a day. Oh. And the meditation centers started featuring his teachings, which at this point were called Life Awakening Movement or the Jivan Jagruti Andolan. All right. I nearly tripped over that <laughs> <laughs> You did have a great job uh, In 1966, he resigned from his teaching post At the request of the Jabal, uh, Jabalpur University After leading a very controversial speaking tour So they're like, oh, you're a danger to children's morality <laughs> Personally, and, and, and uh, religion Let me what you as a teacher If only we'd known <laughs> wow. If only we'd known that there was something that indicated that something had happened before <laughs> But no Well, couldn't see this coming Yes well, Who could have foreseen this? So in 1966, Rajneesh met a young woman by the name of Sheila Ambala Patel. Oh, okay. So she's a very important character. In I was this just story. about to say she sounds important. She has an, yeah, she, she has, has an named. important sounding name. <laughs> she is named in this story. So Sheila Ambala Ambalal. Sheila Ambalal Patel was born in 1949 in Gujarat state in India. She was born to Ambala and Maneben Patel, and was the youngest of six children. At age 16, she and a group of others visited Rajneesh to hear him speak, oh, no. where she became enraptured with uh, his teachings. God. They always do. Yeah, it's a very impressionable age, yeah. especially in the 60s yeah. in india during the caste system with hindu in charge it- she's 16 check- there's this maybe she sees him as a handsome guy
1: and he's talking about how the future is going to change and she's got to listen to her and she's like oh
0: my gosh heart flutters yeah you know i a lot of the, the the extra notes that i had said like they just had a very professional relationship i am convinced that this woman was in love with this man mm-hmm. Fitz. she sounds like kind of like a groupie okay. at first almost like I don't even know too much about her but she's like I'm gonna follow this man anywhere like even in the documentary this is a the fun fact for you the documentary she, she, we have interviews with Sheila because she's still alive spoiler alert okay um and she even it goes as far to say it's like I I was in love with him okay a hundred percent so she's so she it's 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 her own ad, yeah it's her own admission but they as far as anyone knows they never had a relationship it was more just she loved him And he was the next Buddha, so he could not. Okay, all right. Sus, but sure. Sure. So, um... Later on, she even said that her father had said to her that if Rajneesh lives long enough, he will become the next Buddha. Her own dad said that? Her own father said this. All right. So, like, I think... Rajneesh was creating a bit of a name for himself like even now he's not it's not a cult at this point it's just he's just some he's just a a, a teaching guru he just has opinions people go and listen to him speak for a couple of donations he doesn't even have like a, ba- a base of operations he's still traveling from place to place to place there's no like place to go see him he's just he's almost like a wandering minstrel at this point okay. but he was making a name for himself. He was he was saying, you know, like the government's not correct, religion is not correct. This is not how we we should be living. We should be following America. We should be following Europe, and we're not. And we should be doing that. Yeah. So I get it. So, at age 18, Sheila moved to New Jersey in the United States and attended Montclair State College. Okay. So, we'll, she's out of the picture for now, but we'll see her. We'll see her again real soon. So. 1968. Acharya Rajneesh starts a lecture series which was later published as From Sex to the Superconsciousness. Did you read it? I did not read this book, no. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, like, I, I, this, I didn't have a lot of time. It only had two weeks to put this together. <laughs> But uh, but I did get a, a synopsis of it, and it was basically a discourse that called for more open acceptance of sex and sexuality. Okay. So it was basically like we should like marriage shouldn't be like the chains that like keep sex away from you. Being gay is okay. Being a lesbian is all right. You want to be in an open marriage or you want to be polyamorous? Absolutely. You you like uh, you you were born male but identify as more feminine? Sure. It was very like. Like, how can you argue with this guy, like, at the beginning? You know what I mean? Like, he's preaching good things, but it... Yeah, it, it was very much... It was free love. It was love who you want to love. Be who you want to be. Be open about who you love. Yeah. And, like, like is it wrong? <laughs> it's just sad, right? Because it's like, does he really actually
1: believe this? Or is he saying these things to get to, like, a marginalized group of individuals who needed someone, clearly, to be that person for them? Like...
0: Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think in the beginning, I think at this point he did. I think he was frustrated at the the government, uh, uh, the Indian government, the government Indian, yeah. <laughs> the Indian government at the time. I think he was frustrated with being the eldest, the, the eldest male of a, of a large family. I think he was frustrated at... You know, like people didn't understand his opinions. I I think he was frustrated that people were coming at him. They were like, "You're wrong. You have to be this. You have to be this way," because the because our our religion says it should be this way. So, I think at this point, he was like, "I I just want to have like I just want to have sex when I want to have sex. I just want to love who I want to love. I don't want to be forced into an arranged marriage. I don't want to be this. I don't want to do this. And I think people really gravitated to that. And I think he recognized that people gravitated to that, so he shifted his focus that way. Okay. So I think it was kind of a feedback loop in a little way. gotcha. But of course, this book Sex and the, uh, Sex to the Super Consciousness earned rajneesh the title of the sex guru and he never really lost this title throughout the whole of the cult's life he was kind of referred to as the sex guru in in both india and in the united states and it really was because he's, he was preaching this like love who you want to love be open with your love hold hands in public you know you want to have sex on the beach go for it like just be, just be just be the way that you want to be yeah. and yeah all right and, what and a title the hindu government at the time was very conservative so they were like whoa you can't do that and he was like why not yeah Yeah, watch me yeah the hindu government hated it but 1969 nice (laughs) uh he was invited to speak at the second world hindu conference despite the complaints of some of the hindu leaders this was run by the hindu government it was a conference and he was invited to speak okay uh it was here that he was quoted saying any religion which considers considers life meaningless and full of misery and teaches the hatred of life is not a true religion. Religion is an art that shows how to enjoy life. So from what I understand of Hinduism, it follows, uh, you know, Buddha. And it's all about, you know, you give up everything to become enlightened and then from your enlightenment, you become a better person. So it's kind of, it's almost like a fetishization of poverty, of suffering, of you have to be miserable and be at your lowest where you have nothing and then you will gain everything. Yeah. And I think he, he was very much like, why do we worship something that teaches you to be miserable, that teaches you to suffer, to be poor, to be the lowest of the low. And then even then you might not even actually reach enlightenment. You'll just be unhappy. Yeah. Uh, and I think, yeah, like, I, I guess he's wrong. Like, do you want to de- de- dedicate your life to suffering? Or do you want to enjoy the life that you have been given and just live the way that you want to live? Yeah. So I can understand why he became as popular as he did. Yeah. Uh, he talked about the caste system. And he also talked about how it compared, uh, he compared how India treats members of the lower castes as well as women like animals. mm mm-hmm. So kind of you know, like, you know, like, oh, we're fetishizing poverty, but then we're also treating the people who are actually born into poverty like trash. No one. Bueno. Yeah, that's
1: a good, it's a good point. I mean, it's the, it's hard. I'm trying not to say more because it's like, I know it's going to get bad soon. It's like, I, but I, I get it. Yeah. I get where he's coming
0: from. I think it's a bit like a Kemper, right? We're allowed to, like, sympathize at the beginning, but as soon as, like, the shifts start to happen, you're like, huh, That's, maybe we should be thinking but about It there really this. always is. Like, we see
1: it time and time again in these cases where that shift happens. Like you said, at the beginning, like, things start out, like, almost good-natured, and it just somehow, like, it just gets so bad so quickly. And it's like, man, was it was it always, like, gonna turn out like this no matter what? Like, it really makes you question. Or was this just the perfect storm of events for this to just go south?
0: Yeah, I think this one is less of a perfect storm, but it really was, a, it was almost like a perfect environment that something festered in, and we'll, we'll get into it when we get into like, when the cult actually becomes, but I think it'll become apparent very quickly, like how how we got to this point. Gotcha, okay. So, 1970, Rashnish presents his dynamic meditation for the first time in public. So, dynamic meditation was made up of rapid breathing, dancing, music, moving around. It was very not what we consider meditation to be. Because, of course, when you and I think of meditation, what do you think of? You sit still. You don't. There's no, There's nothing. You're, you yeah. clear your head. Yeah. You kind of go internal, don't you? Yeah. like You find peace within your mind and your soul. You you shut off like outside influences. You're Completely, like, like you said, you are in a quiet space. You totally get introspective. It's a very interpersonal experience. Yes And now Rashnish is coming forward And he's like Hey We've been getting that wrong Okay Listen to this So the documentary Wild Wild Country It listed it as a Four part meditation Mm. So part one was Erratic breathing It was a lot of like "Ah, ah, ah." It was a lot of like Really like getting Your heart rate going getting yourself (laughs) lightheaded Yeah pretty much and a part two was a physical explosion. So it was designed to let all internal feelings out. This was dancing, running, screaming, shouting, flailing, whatever you needed to do to get all of your, like, aggressive energy out. Okay. Part three was jumping up and down, and every time your feet hit the ground, you shouted, whoo. So it's just, you know, lots of up and down, up and down, just hoo, hoo, whoo, whoo. Do you do the hand thing, too? Yeah. A lot of the, the documentary, everyone's doing a hand thing. Okay. Uh, and then part four was silence, where you kept still and quiet, lying or either lying or sitting down. So it was kind of just like this rest period after this massive physical explosion. Okay, so there was still a, a I guess a regular part uh, one part of it
1: was still like kind of regular med- meditation almost, but it was like get all that energy out first and then do
0: the laying down part. But I think in this one, part two, which is the physical explosion, that was the important part. That was the part that lasted the longest. Oh, okay. Like, and, the, and the rest period was really like, it was like a, like a cool down after a workout. It was like the two minute afterwards. Just like, okay, good job, everybody. You did your meditation. I'm really proud of you. Okay. And, you know, maybe the, the silence really was like the quote unquote meditation, but the parts that were encouraged were part two and part three. Oh,
1: okay, okay.
0: So... After this, Rajneesh left Jabalpur and uh, moved himself and his teachings to Mumbai at the end of June 1970. Okay. September same year, he initiated his first group of disciples. Okay. Now, this is is a common cult behavior that I think, at least I've noticed, and we at least saw with... um, and Hamilton burn. It's when, you know, you lose who you were and adopt a new person, a new name, a new identity. You have legit followers so, who are willing to throw away their life for you. With the initiation of his new disciples, this was the act of assuming a new name and conforming to a new wardrobe. So not only did his disciples change their names, they also had to conform to a new dress code. Okay. So Rajneesh's followers would wear the traditional saffron dress of the Hindu holy men. It's usually like a long, you know, just kind of like one piece of fabric robe. And this also included a mala, which was a beaded necklace with a locket at the end. And that contained Rajneesh's image. So, you know, kind of like, you know, we have our, in, in Christianity, you've got the, the you know, pictures of Jesus, you've got the cross, you've got that religious symbol. Yeah. This one was, you had a picture of Rajneesh. Wow. All right. He did, however, stress that he was not to be worshipped, and instead he was simply a catalytic agent, like sun, like the sun is to flowers, encouraging them to open. I, <laughs> I don't think he fully. Yeah. Sure. Okay. I think you know it's a humble brag. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> well, like not exactly that, it. He's like, you, no, you're no, not no. worshiping me. You're just worshiping my ideas. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um. With this new wardrobe as well. Um, all of his followers were now wearing different shades of orange, red, maroon, and purple. Okay. This color. Nice, I- looking like a pretty so, sunset. You know, it was... It- Looking at like footage of the cult, it is very visually appealing. I will yeah. say because everyone is dressed the like they're not dressed like the same, mm-hmm. but they're dressed in the same colors. Yeah, it's all you know reds, oranges, maroons, purples. It's like it's very warm. It's very it's almost like a garden in a weird way. Yeah. It's very it's very peaceful to look at. So I I get it. Yeah, but right. of course when you start you have to conform to this particular dress code. Like, is it your own identity? Like, you were allowed to choose what kind of garments you like, especially with like when the Western influence started to come in, you were allowed to dress however you wanted as long as the colors matched.
1: Okay, so that's what I was literally going to ask. So these people are just like going to like normal, like Abercrombie and Finch and just getting those
0: colors and stuff in that wardrobe? Uh, not to that degree, but sort of. I think at this point, it's just robes. So when you would come to his teachings and you became his disciple, you were in proper robes. But then as it evolved and got a little bit more, like, with a little bit more Western influence, they became, you know, t-shirts, jeans, suit jackets. And I think that they were made special. They didn't go to, like, standard stores. They didn't go to malls.
1: They didn't go there. But they They wore this all the time? This was a 24-7, like, you only dressed in this color? This is your life now? Yes. There was your night clothes, it was your day clothes, your swimwear.
0: Everything were these colors. That's like Sims, like, to the extreme. Like, that's crazy. But, you know, kind of culty. But also, I, I fell victim. I watched the documentary. I'm like, wow, everyone looks so pretty. Yeah, I know. I'm like, like man, I could serene. do that. I just pick a color and just go with it forever. Yeah, and like and you were allowed to mix and match colors. Like there are people in the documentary that are wearing like a full suit, but like their shirt is like a soft pink and the jacket itself is like the this this like dark maroon color and then their tie is like a darker purple and it's like it's coordinated. Yeah. It's very clean looking. It's just you have to wear those colors. Oh, I thought you got assigned
1: one color as a person and it was like, Oh, but you just in, in this range of colors, we have like five here's the, the code, the color code on the wheel, and you have to stay within this, like... You
0: gotta spin your color wheel. Yeah, like, that's, I don't know, I
1: thought that was how it worked. I'm like, how does it get assigned?
0: I think, yeah, I think red, the, the like a dark like, maroon red was the primary color. That okay. was like, if you can, wear red. But oranges I've seen were accepted, like very light purples were accepted, like eggplant purples I've seen. Like they, it ranges okay. all over the documentary. This is such a small details. detail, but I'm just so
1: curious about it. It is, it's...
0: but no, but it's but it's an important detail because it comes up later. Okay. So I really I, mean, I do want to hammer in. It's like like right now this is when they this is this behavior starts to happen, but it evolves and it, the whole way through this story, all of the followers are dressed this way. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're, it's not like they're hiding like they they look they looked like just just like you they looked just like me Every, like you could see this cult for miles because they were in packs they were all in the same color and they all had the, the mala never left so even if they were wearing suits they were always wearing those beaded necklaces with the picture of Russia. were they big how big were these necklaces i am curious like, God, like... Uh, about they've been to like mid-chest so, so about the size like... of like an actual necktie about basically Yeah, like, if it it would go with a suit jacket instead of a tie, some of the, like, the lawyers and businessmen in the cult would wear them instead of ties. All right. Okay. Curious. Curious. And sometimes, like, people would wear them as belts. That was another thing. As long as you had it on your person, I think you could accessorize however you wanted to. Wow. So it was really fashion-forward, this cult. It was. Mm -hmm. And, like, once again, it's like, wow, like, you're allowed to dress the way you want as long as you conform to the color. Like, how is that very much different from, like, a workforce, like, in dress code? Yeah. Yeah. Instead, it's, it's just your religion. It's just like it's this. You know, if you look at like nun habits or like priests, like how they have to conform just for their religion. Like, is this more liberal in that religious sense, or is this more conforming because you have to wear a certain color? I it's, guess it depends on what you like, right? Your personal taste. Like, yeah. And I think that's the thing that the issue with this cult, that the kind of what caught them caught, is that you know they're not like they they have their behaviors are not so different from like organized religion. They just were one different different from what we consider an organized religion and two they kind of took it to the nth degree so but you know you it, it's you know people are like oh they're always wearing the same robes I'm like but if you look at nun habits and you look at priest robes and if you look at you know what Mormons are doing and whatever like all these other religions you know how do their religious members dress that's true so, so but at least with cults you the fact that it was a mandated dress code and this was like for casual followers that becomes a bit of a difference where in organized religion you know nuns and things these are people who have dedicated their lives to religion yeah these are not ordinary folk who you know like i'm going to the bank after this to like work my job i'm gonna work in my office i'm gonna no they had to wear these clothes all the time that's interesting okay yeah it's very it's very strange looking at the documentary it's like these packs of people in these colors you're like there, there they are they're the followers okay all right So to derail us from our uh, wardrobe talk, it was also around this time that Sheila, remember her, got married to a man named Mark Harris Silverman, who was an American citizen from Illinois. Okay. She actually met him at university in New Jersey at Montclair. Uh, She then changed her name to Sheila P. Silverman. And in 1972, the couple returned to India to pursue spiritual studies. And Sheila already knew exactly where to go. Yeah, they joined Rajneesh's following. It was here that Sheila changed her name again, and she was now Ma Anad Sheila. It was about this time as well that he, uh, Rajneesh acquired his first secretary, Lakshmi Th- Thakarsi Kurua, who changed her name to Ma Yoga Lakshmi, which is okay. easier to say. <laughs> In terms of the Rajneesh movement, the secretary was more than someone who took notes. This was like their personal assistant, their personal secretary. The secretary was the administrator of the the movement, and they had tremendous power within the community. They were basically second in command. So with Lakshmi's help, the movement began raising money with the goal that Rajneesh would no longer need to travel and instead could settle down and build a permanent congregation, his own Mm, little church. Wow. Okay big step Step. big step yeah but i mean like he's still traveling from place to place to place like he's basically still the wandering mistral movement but now he has this pack of red roped followers following him and now he has a personal secretary and then sheila is now also one of these people who are following around in the red robes wow with her husband still yes uh her husband changed his name to prem chinmaya so he was also a dedicated follower so gotcha. yeah, if I refer to Sheila or Chinmaya. That's Sheila and her husband. Gotcha. Perfect. So in December 1970, Rashnish moved to the Woodlands Apartments in Mumbai, where people could go to visit him and listen to his lectures. This is where his Western audience began to pay attention. So I don't know. Maybe it was just because he had like there was a place that people could visit him now. It wasn't he wasn't just like hope. Oh, maybe we see him here yeah. now that he had a, a specific place, this little apartment people could find him much easier
1: Okay. Uh,
0: so now that his western auntie is paying attention his tra- uh, because of that his traveling stopped and he no longer spoke at open public meetings now people chose to come listen to him he no longer did these these religious conventions hmm. uh, it was in 1971 that he adopted the title Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh so he's changed his name again Shri is the equivalent of the English word sir so that's kind of it's an honorific uh, and it can also mean prosperity because it comes from Lakshmi. Uh, Bhagwan means blessed one, or a more direct translation is Godman. Oh, okay. So, so his name is now Godman Sir Rajnish. It's a good name. Yeah, Bhagwan essentially means that a person who wears their divinity outwards. So it, it's once again it's a type of honorific, but he is now adopting this is his, his actual title. Uh, Rajneesh had this to say about his name change. I loved the term. I said, at least for a few years, that will do. Then we can drop it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) He's like, yeah, no, that'll do for now. That's fine. Yeah, Godman's fine. We'll see what what we move on to after this. (laughs) Yeah,
1: you never know. Might get promoted again.
0: Yeah. I have a quote here as well from him, just to be like how he was handling these permanent talks as well. Now I am no more a teacher, and you are not here as students. I am here to impart being, I'm here to make you awaken. I am not here to give knowledge. I am going to give you knowing. And that is a totally different dimension. All right. So he's like, I stepped it up. Yeah. He dropped the, the title Acharya, which meant teacher. And now he has switched to Godman. So now he is converting from, I am no longer a teacher. I am a religious figure in a weird way. Okay. So Mumbai, unfortunately, had its drawbacks. Um, And it actually took a huge toll on Rajneesh's health. Uh, It was during his time in these apartments he was diagnosed with diabetes, asthma, and a number of really nasty allergies. So now he is a very frail man. Wow. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, no, and he had health issues for the rest of his life from this. And so I think that's something to also keep in mind during all this is that he is not well. Yeah. Um, But of course... There's a lot of that—that that frailty, that you no know, Gandhi being of a, a frail religious leader. I think there people drew a lot of that. It was like, oh, he his his physical body is unwell because his spiritual power is too powerful for him. Mm, so it worked really well for the narrative of the whole thing. For him. I think so. I, wow. So 1974, he moved his congregation to Pune with the help of his uh, one of his disciples, Ma Yoga Mukta, who was also known as Catherine Venizelos who was a Greek shipping heiress, so wealthy Western follower. And you know, isn't this very Anne Hamilton? You know, she got the doctors, she got the lawyers, she got the... Yeah. It's these wealthy people who are looking for satisfaction, I think. Yeah. You know, I have everything, but I don't have this, this spiritual satisfaction. And here's this religious leader who's saying, you don't have to give up your, your wealth. You don't have to be poor. You don't have to be you know yeah. anti-money you can you just solve. have to share it with me yeah like you can still be <laughs> fulfilled i just give like i get a small portion and they're like yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely you Pay your tax to god and you get the happiness it's a really sweet deal it, it is you know and, I, and i'm sure a lot of people did get a lot of satisfaction from this throughout the whole story much like yours your cult yeah it's, it's the it's a tale as old as time yeah like you said i can't take that away from the people that experienced it absolutely
1: and nor nor I guess what I, I want to. I don't know. I, I guess it depends how this turns out. But I mean, like you said, religion is a very personal thing. And so it's it's hard to to
0: judge it yeah. when people are going through it. I think while I was doing this, all of this research, and of course I've I've, I've been living in this cult for two weeks, yeah. um, I've, I've kind of come to the, the conclusion. I have no issues with religion. I have no issues with if that's what you need, if that's something you want to explore, if that's something that you personally really, really want in your life. 100%. But the religion has to be the betterment of the individual and not the betterment of somebody else. Yeah. So religion should make you a better person. It should fill you spiritually. And it shouldn't come at the cost of you losing your identity and you having to revere somebody else as the most important thing in your life. Yeah. So that's kind of where I... Pull this thing. It's like absolutely. If you want to give donations because you're thankful, a hundred percent, like do it. But don't it's do it. The same it. reason people, tw- you know, pay their Twitch streamers when
1: they're they're watching. Yeah. they like, you know, they want they really appreciate the entertainment. They appreciate what they're contributing. But like yeah. you said, it shouldn't it should be a requirement.
0: Yeah, it shouldn't be like, oh, I have a wealthy heiress. I have a wealthy businessman. I have a doctor. I have all of these people from wealthy backgrounds. Well, why don't you buy me my house? Why don't you buy me my airplane? Like the the money should go to the betterment of the teachings, not the betterment of the lifestyle of the leader. Agreed. So, yeah. It's all about, you know, making sure that you're bettering yourself as an individual. And, you know, be, make sure, just be a good person. I think that's it. Be a good person. Yeah. Whatever motivation you need for that, just be yeah. a good person. Just be a good person. That's all That's all we ask for at the end of the day. Be a good person. Yeah. So, with the help of this Greek shipping heiress, they acquired a property that's commonly referred to as the Puna Ashram. So, Ashram basically is kind of like a monastery. It's, it's their own little church. It's their commune. It's now their place of operations. So Rashnish stayed at the Pune Ashram from 1974 to 1981. Okay. And during this time he developed his little discourse, his little teachings into a full-blown religious commune. So it was um, the ashram was a six-acre property with two adjoining houses at the center of it, and it was full of really, really lush gardens. So it was very peaceful. There are fountains everywhere, there's gardens, there's flowers. Um, it's there's footage of it in the documentary. It's actually very beautiful. It's a very beautiful little like little plot of land. It's like a little oasis in Pune. Hmm. So here, uh, Rajneesh began regular audio recordings and later video recordings of his teachings. Uh, he also began printing his discourses for worldwide distribution. So now we're getting international BB. Wow. All right. From this huge spike in Western audience, and it almost became like an attractive thing where it's like, oh, you know, here's this guru, the sex guru. he's he's teaching, you know, love open love and freedom and break away the chains of of conformed religion. Come over here, you get to wear pretty colors, and we get to like sing and dance and talk. and, you know, w- you can just hear him speak, and you can just be there with him and learn and get spiritual fulfillment. So people are like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I'm sure like you said, a lot of people like just like taking
1: vacations or I can imagine a lot of college students, you know, that were like, I'm going to go take a year off and like backpack and
0: find myself. They're like, you know what? He's got a point. Yeah. I'm going to go visit that guy and learn about myself. Yeah. There are people in the documentary who even said that it's like, oh, I was finishing college and I didn't know what to do. And then my roommate had gone to India for like a year, like a a semester and he came back like spiritually enlightened. So I went to go where he went and I I learned everything. And it's like, yeah, like people would just word of mouth. It spread like wildfire. Yeah, um, how those things do. Yeah, there were even people on, like, when they were applying for visas to visit India, they would even say, like, I'm just going to see this guy. Yeah. That's uh, a big attraction. Yeah. Um, pretty soon after this, the ashrams um, soon started featuring fun family activities like Arts and Craft Center. Woo! <laughs> so it was actually in this Arts and Crafts Center that the followers could make jewelry, clothing, ceramics, and they could also host performances of theater and music which the visitors would pay to participate in.
1: Wow. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. You <laughs> could be like, a, you want to this bit? craft?
0: That's $5 for the, for the wood. And you want to participate in this? $3 to enter. Like. I don't think it was particularly expensive, but of course it was a novelty. Like these, these sessions would fill up and you would make, you know, shoes, you would make necklaces, you would make bracelets, you would make... Whatever you wanted to make, you would connect with people from all over the world, and I think it was like you know, it was like a ten dollar entry fee. It was very, it wasn't you know like break back break the bank. It wasn't an exclusive to the wealthy clients. Anyone. Could and if do you're it. Fly- yeah, and if you're flying to India for the sole purpose of you know going to like
1: meet this guy in general and whatnot, what is ten extra bucks to attend one of these like like you said like once in a lifetime classes? Yeah. Like, I mean, like.
0: But yeah, those little resorts, you know, you come here, you pay for paragliding, you pay for scuba diving, you pay for, you know, know, beachside yoga. This is no different. It's part of, like, it's part of the package. Yeah. This is where it started to get a little bit different, though. Because in 1975, the ashram welcomed therapists in. Ah, Which means the community could now do therapy group meditations. And that became a massive source of income. And this is the 70s, baby. Therapy, what is therapy but for those quote-unquote diagnosed schizophrenics, you know, sitting in prisons and, and, you know, these it wasn't something that people just actively pursued unless there was something actively wrong with you. And here is this ashram in India where they're hiring these therapists to just be like, "Yeah, like, do you want to just talk about how you're feeling? Like, let's let's just like break into the, just the surface level of like, what do you want? What do you need? What do you yeah. what do you desire in your life?" And they would do these group meditations of, you know, fulfillment and they would do marriage counselings, couples therapy, everything. Wow. That's And, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's like, you know, <laughs>
1: therapy yeah. yeah I mean like it's it, it's a good thing like how could you be against it right it's therapy like you said but it's like it, it, but if it's not done in the right way if it's being used as a coercive tool to be like wow your problem is the lack of religion in your life yeah like, or, I don't I don't know I feel like it's just a another thing to kind of funnel people back towards the church and like you said charge them well, for more these things. weren't
0: therapists hired like trained by the commune these were like actually licensed therapists that they would hire Still sus. It's, you know, fair. We'll, 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 we'll get into it, because it started, it's it's like, the weirdness is going to start I mean, appearing very shortly, but, yeah. like, but can you imagine, like, it's the 70s, like, therapy's not a thing, and then suddenly, like, here, you can just go here, and then they'll, like, listen to you about how sad you are, and it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, sign me up, baby. Yeah. Like, and I can do it with people who are just like me? Perfect. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. So the ashram was often described as an exciting and intense place to be. It was very emotionally charged. Sometimes described as a madhouse carnival atmosphere. Uh, everyone would be dressed in orange or maroon robes. Everyone would be speaking to everyone. People would hug. They would dance. They would walk. They would engage each other. There were people like sitting reading in the gardens. There were people doing arts and crafts in like the the little hut. There were people putting on performances. There was music. Like it was basically just kind of a beautiful little hot pot of a bunch of different cultures and reli- like and actual religions and beliefs and ethnicities and genders. It was everyone, kind of just came to be in this little commune. Yeah. So you know, at this point, at this at, point, it does it sounds really nice and peaceful? Yeah. At the on the on a very surface level, this is awesome. Yeah. Uh, a typical day would start at six a.m. with dynamic meditation, the four-step process we talked about a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at 8 a.m. Rajneesh would give a 60 to 90 minute spontaneous lecture in the ashram's auditorium where he would comment on religious writings or he would Q&A with his new visitors. But is it spontaneous if it's planned every day? I don't think it was planned. Like, I think he was just like, I'm just going to talk for an hour and I'll just say what I want to say. I think it was oh, more like that. Oh, it, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. It wasn't spontaneous. Like, I'm going to do a talk today. Surprise, everybody. It was more like, I, gotcha. I don't know what the topic's going to be, but we're going to talk for an hour. Gotcha. Just whatever's relevant at the time. Like, how we feeling today, guys? This yeah. is the topic. All right. Let's 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 discuss it. Yeah. what someone came to me with this issue yesterday and I wanted to talk about it in front of all of you. It was more like that sort of thing. I respect that. Yeah. Um, these lectures were usually held in Hindi, but um, later on he would actually alternate the next one in English. So one day he would do Hindi, the next day he would do English. One day he would do Hindi, next day he would do English. Well, that's nice of him. Mm. Um, he would speak of the new man, which was his ultimate state of being, where one would, transgen- or would transcend gender, race, color, faith, and nationality. They would simply become awakened. Is that still here on Earth that happens? What, his, his talks or... Kind of the new man, becoming yeah. the new man. Yeah, it would be what humanity should become. It would be yeah, like you as a as a human being would just you would lose your shackles of gender, race, color, and faith. You would simply be awakened. It was okay. a state of being. It was kind of his own form of enlightenment. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. No heaven required, baby.
1: It just sounds like one of those things that like once once your soul transcends, then you'll then you'll really
0: like. It sounds deathy to me. I don't know. I got <laughs> i hold on to that okay oh, hold on to it. It, it it does sound deathy a little bit but hold on to that we'll put okay. a pin in that one just, just okay. leave, leave that it's one in there. my pocket it's in my pocket for now yeah well, just put it in your pocket put it in your hand <laughs> as the day would go on they would hold um various meditations and therapy sessions throughout the day and these were described as intense oh how so oh. Well, let's talk about them. So there were multiple there were uh, multiple sessions that followers could participate in. So visitors could either consult the Rajneesh for which one that he thought that they should belong to, or they could choose whichever session just spoke to them in the moment. Okay. Alongside therapy group sessions, which were the more tame ones, there were experimental sessions with varying degrees of physical encounters. So, varying degrees of physical encounters includes includes physical <coughs> aggression. Or sexual encounters between the participants?
1: Uh, I was worried when you said physical. Oh, like, that's a very, like. Yeah. And he's the sex he's, guru, so. He was called the sex yeah, guru okay. for something. <laughs> Alright, so they were having orgies.
0: <laughs> sound like religious religious orgies. There's recorded footage of some of these early experimental sessions that I watched. Ma'am, I'm so not sorry not knowing not knowing what was going on. And it's a lot. Like, I, I'll describe one of the the particular the, the, the particular session that I watched because it was it wasn't a, in one of the orgy ones, but it was one of those like mid-betweens so uh, a sh- what, I, what yeah so it was what's a mid I've never been to an orgy what's a mid between I've never been to an orgy either <laughs> no
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you see to have more knowledge than I do you watch I'm telling you what I saw in
0: this video so it's a lot of screaming <laughs> like people were fighting there was like throwing bodies against each other they're all closed at this point they're screaming fighting shouting this we- is the foreplay to the orgy I guess there's a lot of hair pulling there's a lot of like moaning and swaying then everybody gets naked Okay. <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen. This <laughs> was already this. a lot. <laughs> it was very jarring. This is the 70s. So it, yeah, this footage actually got released in the US later. This footage that I watched got released in cinemas. In the U.S. Oh, later, no. okay. That's, and can I can't you imagine, imagine people. people in the '70s watching this? No,
1: no, I can't actually. In the theater with in the like, theater could you imagine people. like you? Yeah, and like you imagine not knowing, I guess, like what you're going to see, like fully, like you don't like understand, and so you're like, "Hey, mom and dad, like I heard about this like film, this foreign film, like with this like it's like religious, like you want to go?" And then it's just you're sitting there in a theater with your
0: parents. Watching an orgy? Yeah, and like this though, the footage in the cinemas was released at the time, like during kind of like the, the peak of the cult. So it was a lot of like, do you wanna see what the the cult group sessions look like? Like, would you like to know more about this weird thing that's happening in Oregon? And people were like, Yeah, I guess I kinda of wanna know what's happening in Oregon, and they would just watch this footage. And it was just like, it's very jarring. It's very, very jarring. Even for like someone nowadays, it's very jarring footage just to see just these group of people go into like this this state and then they start screaming and shouting and like throwing themselves against each other they all get naked at one point there's a lot of nudity in the documentary by the way so don't watch that if you don't want to watch a lot of nudity man but yeah I'm glad you watched it so I don't have to yeah I watched it so you don't have to but it's a very interesting documentary but it includes part of the footage of this thing but, of course, it, that's how it starts. It's, it's just this, this footage of these people basically going at each other, either trying to murder or fuck each other. And then we... it, it just ends kind of abruptly with everyone completely zonked out. Like, they're all kind of just, like, lying there. Like they, It sounds like a lot of physical exertion, I mean. Yeah, it was like, there's a lot of naked cuddling, there was embracing, there were, like, hug circles going on. It was like... It was all just kind of like it was almost like an apology for like what happened earlier in a weird way. It was, it was you know it's very like, but it's it's like it's consent in a weird way. Like it didn't start off with consent, but it ended with I'm like really like I'm sorry. Like we're all connecting. Like we're all there for that. We all experience that. And it like so I kind of like, these these sessions weren't designed as sessions of abuse. I I, I can say that much. I, they probably just got, it was really easy to get out of hand because people would just they would just yeah. expel. And they weren't, like, and from what I can see from this footage, like, they weren't aware, they weren't really paying attention to each other. They were just expelling personally, and they were taking it out on other people as if they were props. Yeah. And then they only really became people again at the end of it. So I can understand how these got out of control real quick. Yeah. Yeah. So, you wonder where the line of consent was drawn really with that whole thing and then, then this is the 70s was consent even a thing was like you yeah, like I mean, consent I was back I signed then it up wasn't to a, this so
1: yeah like you said that was not like even like a real conversation like you said to that point I mean like if even your own partner and whatnot like marital rape wasn't even illegal until what like 1993hmm
0: 1996 yeah. I don't remember yeah. one of those is until the 1990s yeah I, I pre- I'm pretty sure like the level of consent was I want to sign up for this thing and that was kind of just a blanket like okay you agree whatever happens to you happens yeah that's interesting yeah to say the least as a result of these sessions there, a lot of conflicting reports of injuries began to appear in the
1: press. Well, I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah, I really am speechless. I'm sorry, I'm not commenting more on this. Like, no, we talked more.
0: I feel like about the clothes thing, and like <laughs> and then you
1: said this, and I'm just like, okay, that's interesting. Moving on. No, but uh, I honestly like have no words. Like I'm just like,
0: yeah, it's it's very jarring, and uh, it's like, it, and unless you physically see it, I don't like can it's to to imagine what they were like. I don't think does justice because of course when I was doing the research, I was imagining these sessions like, huh, like that's really strange, and then actually seeing footage of the sessions is very different. That's a very very different, very different experience. Um. so various reports of, of, of terrible injuries would come out. One such report included a therapist receiving a broken arm after being locked in a room for eight hours with participants who signed up for the session and they were promptly armed with wooden weapons. Wait, what? Yeah, so there was an eight hour session with a, a group therapy session one of the experimental sessions and the participants would be given wooden weapons to just expel whatever they needed to expel and they basically beat on and and broke the arm of the therapist leading the session I mean, like, I'm, that's awful, but I'm, like,
1: shocked that that's all that, with wooden weapon, like, I mean, I imagine, like, a bat, you know what yeah. I mean, or just, like, a wooden board, I don't know what a wooden weapon is. Yeah, I, but, do-
0: like, I don't think he was the target for the full eight hours, but I, f- I feel like, especially at the beginning, when, like, you're like, you gotta get all that energy out. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, they probably wailed on each other, and they're like, that's just part of the experience, baby, I came out with a couple of bruises, but this poor therapist who has to conduct these multiple sessions every day suddenly gets Jesus. his arm, like, their arm broken. yeah yeah, you really... I don't... Mm. Yeah. So, violence within these particular groups were was phased out. So these sessions did okay. come to an end in 1979. Good. Um, the ashram actually put out a statement about the violence, saying, violence had fulfilled its function within the overall context of the ashram and as an evolving spiritual commune. So he had a... He's like, yeah. So they were like, everyone who did the violence... Like there, there we did that. That it, it gave us the level of lightning we needed. We don't need it anymore. It happened. We we did it. Yep, we we're good, pretty much. So, right. Another step of this was people could graduate from the meditation groups, and then in turn work for the ashram. So people could now mm-hmm. these visitors could be like, "Hey, you love this so much, you want to stay? You can work here." Yeah. Uh, but. The positions were hard, unpaid labor, and the supervisors for the the positions were described as abrasive, and they were abrasive by design. They were so. Who would want these jobs? A lot of people. A lot of people wanted these jobs because these jobs oh, were to, they were supposed to inspire opportunities of self-reflection and transcendence kind of like you know Hindu teachings were great suffering I was just about to say wasn't this what we were trying to get away from what yep. the heck yep. like but how did this loop back around to the same shit but isn't this a, it's kind of culty where it's like you're so in love with the teachings don't you just want to give everything to the yeah, teachings and, and you don't it's even, basically you don't question it's, it. it's unpaid hard labor where these like some of the ones described in the documentary was like you cleaning toilets you became cleaning staff you became gardeners, you became just you became the dog's body of these of this ashram, basically, where it's like we're gonna put you to work and you're just gonna do the jobs that nobody else wants to do so the rest of us can focus on being enlightened. Jeez. But there was also opportunity that, you know, once you did your dues in these hard positions, you would be granted further opportunities mm-hmm. higher in the ashram. So you know. But is it worth sure. it? I personally don't think so. But and yet, people these co- these positions were coveted, coveted, and yeah, and people people and they were filled. There, I think they actually had to turn people away at some point where it's like, oh, sorry, like we don't have any jobs going on right now. I'm sure you're not qualified enough. We
1: got this other guy who's a doctor that decided he wants to scrub toilets, so yeah. he's just a little more qualified than you. Yeah, and he
0: paid us a million dollars where you're only paying us twenty thousand. <laughs> he's paying us to do the hard labor. Yeah, what a scam. It- it is a scam. It is a scam. The cults are a scam. That's just like, oh, cults man. cults are a like, scam. That's just like, <laughs> wow! Say it with me. Well, cults guy... are a scam. <laughs> cults are a scam. Man, that is just... Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And I think this is, this is a really rare cult where we actually really get to see what's going on behind closed doors because there is footage of everything. Mm. To yeah. this degree, there, there, there are, there's film, there's interviews, there's survivors, there's... The, you, we know everything that happened behind these walls. We might not have known them at the time, but the footage came out, and you know this, the, the documentary that I watched. It's footage of everything that was happening behind these closed doors, and it's Jeez. it's a lot. Yeah, no, that is really interesting because, like you said, there's so
1: many cults that like we we're lucky we even know about them because of how little. The, of like just documentation in general there is, let alone like actual raw footage Like, yeah. where they're just like, hey, let's advertise and show the world what we're doing like that's crazy.
0: Yeah, and you know for a cult especially, I don't like I think it, to be a cult you're very insular, you don't want people outsiders to know what you're up to, because nine times out of ten, you're up to something shifty so the yeah. fact that, you know, at this at, at this point, it was very like, yeah, come down to our cult, we'll beat you to death with wooden sticks and then you'll thank us and then you can make some shoes afterwards yeah, or, and then, yeah. And, and, yeah, and if you do enough, uh, do good work during your sessions you can clean our toilets it was very like yeah come on down to, to, to come Contra. on down to crazy town pretty much it, it gets a little bit more insular as we'll see but it's one of the and, it, and that's also what kind of baffles me I hadn't heard of this cult and it's so well documented yeah it's. I've never heard of this either yeah it's crazy and I think especially with what they get up to later it's mind boggling that I didn't know about this cult yeah. Mm-hmm. So another kind of speaking of things we don't want people to see, hidden behind closed doors, uh, there were also reports inside the ashram that foreign visitors were using the ashram therapies as guises for drug running and sex work. Oh. So these foreign visitors would like create sponsored sessions, and they were basically prostitution rings and fronts for selling Christ. drugs. Jesus. Okay. How quickly the turntables! Yeah, the turns have tables indeed. So, uh, so a lot of people allege that Rajneesh was not directly involved, like he wasn't one organizing this, but he gave. I, but it, I'm sure he didn't blend me on. But he gave his I. blessing to all activities within his walls. Exactly.
1: He knew. He knew, but didn't know. He's like, you know, if the money's good, I can pretend I didn't see.
0: I think that's kind of the moral of this story: is if, like, he didn't know, but he knew. Yeah, that's just man. Yeah. So naturally, with all of this buzz and this, like even bad news is good news like like any press is good press, the ashram grew rapidly. By the end of the 1970s the Pune Puna ashram was too small to contain all of the visitors and members of this religious organization. So Rajneesh began looking for new horizons to either set up a Ugh. larger location or somewhere to add new locations. Yeah. The dream was this new place could house over 10,000 followers, and it would essentially become a spiritual city. That's crazy. 10,000. 10,000 followers. Like, the sheer number, like, just just an an occupation of 10,000 people, all dressed the same, all doing these sessions, all preaching and going to these, these auditorium talks. Like... Man, the, the closest thing we kind of have akin to that is, like, Rome and the Pope. Like, yeah. a religious, full-on religious city. Yeah. Like the the scale of that. That's just unbel- unfathomable, truly, to, yeah. to
1: just imagine. I cannot even...
0: Yeah. So, the overall goal of this new location was it was designed to act as a beacon and a role model for every other city on the planet. It was going to become... A utopia. Of course it would. It yeah. sounds like it. So, a few locations within India were picked, uh, but nothing came of those due to conflicts between Rajneesh and the government. Because, as we've established, the government don't like him. Yeah. Yeah. Any and all land use was blatantly and flat out refused. And this is the point where foreign visas were starting to get denied if that if they indicated that their destination was the ashram. So all of these wealthy visitors, these western visitors who were like I want to go see him, ask my that's the purpose of my visit. They would get turned away. They'd be like, "Nope, fly back to where you came from."
1: Wow, okay.
0: Yep. Uh then the government canceled the tax-exempt status of the ashram, which, you know, of course, as a religious movement, you get tax, that's a big deal. you get tax exemption. Suddenly, yeah. he, the ashram had to pay 5 million dollars from oh all the previous gosh. years. That they hadn't been paying taxes.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. That's a lot of money to it's have a, to pay back all at once. Lot. Do they even have that? They do. They do have this money. But that's the mind-blowing part. They have $5 million just sitting in a bank account somewhere. <laughs> yeah, like, what the hell? Who? Yeah, and it's these, it's these wealthy Western visitors. That's crazy. Wow. So, Even political parties that had previously endorsed Rajneesh and his teachings actually began to back out. Or they would keep quiet during this kind of weird shift of power. Where they're like, oh, well, you know, we've got other things to to do. We we can't really, you know, we can't really help you right now. Because, like, we're busy running the government or we're trying to, like, acquire the government. So pretty much all of, like, any political, like, backing that this commune had, out the window. So then, May, 1980 there was an attempt on Rajneesh's life. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Full-on assassination. Excusez-moi. Assassination plot, baby. Oh, my gosh. I was not expecting that, actually. It was so early, and we're not even in full cult mode yet. Yeah, no, we just got into the 1980s. Like, what? hmm May 1980, a young Hindu fundamentalist named Vilas Tapa, I think is his name, Vilas Tapa, attempted to kill Rajneesh because he believed Rajneesh was a CIA agent.
1: Uh... Okay, that's not like I, I'm shocked that it even happened. I'm shocked the reason. Yeah, it's just not. That's
0: so out of left, left field for me. Uh, You'll be even more shocked when you try to figure out oh, how he did it. So yeah, tell me. Vilas stood up in the middle of one of Rajneesh's morning sermons, one of his spontaneous morning sermons, and he threw a knife at the spiritual leader. Oh! Uh-huh. Very nearly hitting him. It went shoo. What? <laughs>
1: Confused of noises? Like, what? I'm like, I can't even... Right,
0: it's like, guy stands up, middle of a religious sermon, throws a knife at a guy, immediately tackled to the ground. He's like, I'm trying to kill him because he works for the CIA, and he's just... I'm not even being attacked for the things that I'm talking about. (laughs) I literally cannot. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, so Rejnish took this as a sign that it was time to move on and create measures to protect himself, his teachings... Not just followers Because Clearly they're just Coming in and trying To throw knives at me Yeah That's I mean You gotta take measures After that Yeah So at this time as well Around this time uh, Tragedy would also Strike Ma'anad Sheila So her husband Mark Silverman Or Prem Chimnaya Died of Hodgkin's disease At age 33 uh, And For okay. those of those Who don't know Hodgkin's disease Is white blood cell cancer Okay It's, it's very painful It's very awful he had it yeah. pretty much since moving into the commune. I think he, I think uh, the documentary said that he had been fighting it for eight years, and he succumbed to his illness at the age of 33. Wow. That's so young. He was so young. So, so young. Um, but Sheila, ne- never deterred, got married the same year to a man named John Shulfer, who was a New York bank officer. Ah, uh, wow. Okay. Same year. Same year. That's... Pretty much a couple of months after. Okay. Cool, Sheila. Yeah. Uh, Sheila and John had met within the Rajnish commune. And after they got married, he changed his name to Prem Jayananda. He also became the president of the Rajnish Foundation International, which is basically just like the overall running operation. Yeah. To help distribute the works, the books, the videos, the tapes. Yeah, it was their religious foundation. I see. Uh, During the documentary, Sheila actually talks about uh, Her first husband's death Being that, you know, she went to Rajneesh the night that he died Just before he passed away And she was like, I think my husband's going to die And Rajneesh said, you're not allowed to cry Uh, Then uh, he did pass away that night And then she said that Rajneesh put her in a trance For three days After the funeral And then she got up and she was fine And she never felt any grief then I guess it explains how she was able to get married a few months later. You know, I think that's just the power that
1: Rajneesh had. I mean, yeah, if you want to be hypnotized, then
0: I guess she'll be hypnotized, right. you know? So, 1981, baby. Rajneesh's ashram holded 30,000 visitors a year. Jesus. Yeah. Most that's of a lot which, of visitors. It's a lot of visitors, and most of which were European and American, so big influx of western visitors.
1: Man, that's just like, I, I'm I don't know, I like I'm shocked but I, I guess not
0: shocked because it's the 80s that's like you know, peace, love, rock yeah. and roll man. Like, yeah, we've just come out of the free love movement of the 70s, this is like and now we're getting into like satanic panic territory where religion's really clamping down on that, where that's just like, yeah. you need to be a good Christian, you need to do this, nuclear marriage you know, man and a, only a man and a woman can love each other, like Everyone everyone, stay put, everyone be good, everyone worship God. And it's a lot of people coming out of that free love movement being like, I don't want to do that. Yeah, 100%.
1: That's why I just, I, I can imagine it, but I'm just so shocked that it just has such a, a huge,
0: huge following. Yeah, wow. it's massive. Uh, it was also noted around this time that Rajneesh's lecture style also changed, switching from a more intellectual uh, speaking type uh, based around philosophy to becoming a bit more jokey and basically turning his lectures into a stand-up comedy act. Okay. So can we get when can we find his stand-up comedy now? Uh, I didn't find it, but I'm sure that we probably could because there's so much footage. <laughs> and if you I even if you hear much- him talk, he's very. He's he's definitely he's he's very personable. He's very charismatic. He's also he's like the way he talks. He's like I'm just like one of you guys. Like like we're, like wasn't that crazy? Like what they did over the, it's like it's very like trying to connect one on one. So I kind yeah. of understand. And of course, if people feel like they're connecting and like like personally with their leader, it's gonna create a more loyal following. A hundred percent. I mean, that's, I guess
1: the shift. Yeah, it's just shocking. That's not do many cult leaders steer
0: into comedy. I don't know of many that I personally know of, but I'm not <laughs> saying that it's not a thing. But I, it's, it's clearly yeah. He, uh, but did he invent that? I don't know. Yeah, but I, mean, I think it's you know normally what we see in cults is that it's like mm-hmm. now I am God. You yeah. like you, it is more of like fear and dominance. But this one was more like, hey, I'm just like you guys. Like, pff, like yeah, that we're being bullied. It's us versus them, guys. It was very like personal. And it's, like, I, I almost feel like it worked better. Yeah, I know.
1: That's, I'm, like, it's such a unique technique to go about. It. I've never seen another cult leader adopt that. And that's just, like, I'm, like, was this the first time, like, in history that, like, someone really... A cult leader took that kind of persona on of, like, like you said, like, I'm, I'm just like you. Like,
0: I'm not like Jesus where he's judging you. Like, yeah, it's like, know. there's no judgment here. We all make mistakes. Like, like, how's the family? How's, like, how how's everything going? It's, yeah, it's... And... As, as, as we'll find out later, like the cult is still alive. So. Alright, alright. So, does it work better? I, I, don't so know. I guess that's a question for the end of part two. I all guess right. it is. So, also, around this time, it was reported that Lakshmi, his personal secretary, failed to find further property for the new commune. Oh. So yeah, she was. They were like, "Sorry, Lakshmi." Like she was like, "I can't find a single piece of property in India. Nobody wants to take us. We're being turned away. They don't want the land used to become a spiritual commune. Not gonna fly." So Rajneesh is also still battling with all of his me- medical issues. His diabetes is still going. You know, stresses of all this so government is coming to him. He's still a frail older gentleman. He's got terrible like allergies going on. So with all of that in mind, Lakshmi was removed as his personal secretary Oh. instead she was replaced by Ma Anad Sheila I knew it I knew it I knew it oh yeah we wouldn't be talking about her if she wasn't an important woman okay yeah so Ma Anad Sheila and her husband John Shelfer aka Pram Jayananda are now the three most powerful people inside the commune jeez okay so on April 10th 1981, after 15 years of public speaking, Rajneesh decided to take a vow of public silence.
1: Uh, that's out of left field, too.
0: Yeah, it's very strange, isn't it? 15 years of every day for, like, every day for 15 years, talking for 60 to 90 minutes about everything, being personable, connecting with his following, and suddenly he is not speaking in public at all. Yeah. Yeah? That's... How did, how did even manage to do that? So, hour-long lectures were replaced with silent sitting and music, as well as reading spiritual texts. So, it kind of came like a, a, a quiet book club. It, it almost like became like a library in a weird way. <laughs> and, at, and at this point, we had a lot of administrators. So, we have the personal secretary, but she had her lieutenants as well. So, they were kind of mandating these group sessions. All of the sessions were still happening, but they were being led by therapists. They were being led by disciples. So... The only thing that he was really participating in actively were these lectures at the beginning. And now they're just silent reading time. Reading time with Rajneesh. (laughs) Reading time with Rajneesh. Well, as a fan of reading, that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah. But of course, he can't speak now to his following. But not to worry, he has a personal secretary. So, Ma Anad Sheila became Rajneesh's voice. And his spokesperson. That's a big... Promotion. Wow. It's a massive promotion. All right. So, Sheila's secretary. She's in charge. She's Rajneesh's voice. And with all the pressure coming from both the media and politicians, it became more and more apparent that the, 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 the Pune ashram was no longer welcome and the commune needed to move. And it was around here that Sheila allegedly posed the idea that they could establish a brand new commune in the U.S., Mm. So Rajneesh was allegedly resistant to the idea at first But changed his mind in May 1981 So, June 1st, 1981 It's coming out of baby Rajneesh made his very first trip to the United States And it was the first time in four years that he ever left the ashram Wow Okay. He did not tell his followers that he was leaving he simply disappeared one day. That's fun. He's just like, "You know, I'm just going to take a little trip, a little sneaky trip." I, th- I think he left like late at night. So like the few followers that were like awake and walking around, they saw him like get in the car and they were like, "Oh, like goodbye, see you later." And it was like a very like he just drove out yeah. and then, like never came back. Jeez. And it was just yeah. So hmm. Sheila later said that secrecy was needed or their plans for relocation to the U.S. would not succeed, which tells me that this is a very shifty business that they are about to in. (laughs) Yeah. So Rajneesh traveled to the U.S. on a tourist visa for medical purposes and spent several months at the International Rajneesh retreat center in Montclair, New Jersey, where Sheila had gone. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, So she's like, hey, I know this place in New Jersey. It's pretty cool. You can stay there until we find a place to settle down. He's like, sure, it's cool. See you there. Um, It was actually at this retreat center that he was diagnosed with a prolapse disc in his back. And he received extensive medical treatment at St. Thomas Hospital. So that on top of all of his other things. Yeah. His medical issues are stacking up. Yeah, it sounds like it. But now, at least, Rajneesh was in the States. And he was not in a hurry to leave. And of course, Sheila had a mission so 13th of June 1981 Sheila's husband Prem Jayan- Jayananda or John Shelfer along with a few other wealthy followers purchased a property in Oregon for 5.75 million dollars wow alright chump yeah. change for them right oh yeah they were just like psh, psh easy yeah I'm um, just at how much that money is like, and it's, it's back then too so it's like wow it's, like, it's money we can't even fathom. I yeah. should have looked up what this was. This is 80s money, 5.75 million. I'm sure that that's like 17 million dollars for us. It's got like it. it, like you said, it's got the inflation's yeah. crazy on that. Yeah, like the, the, the it's money that you and I can't even comprehend. No. Like it's so much money. It's I so would never zeros. see this much money in my lifetime. No. no. Oh. So the property was a sixty-four, sorry, sixty-four thousand two hundred and twenty-nine-acre ranch named Big Muddy Ranch. The ranch was promptly renamed Rancho Rejdish. Love it. Very western. Yeah. Name. Yeah, I love it. I like they're, they're getting into their western mm-hmm. environment. Um, the ranch was mostly slopes and rugged, rocky terrain. It was considered inhospitable land. Hmm. Okay. It, it was located in both Wasco and Jefferson counties, and it was 19 miles outside of Antelope, Oregon. All so, right. Antelope, Oregon consisted of a post office a general store a schoolhouse and a church and a couple of houses oh wow there were 75 people living there wow okay yeah majority were working class and of retirement age so Mm -hmm. tiny tiny speck yeah and then suddenly this massive ranch right next to this tiny 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 town is bought up for 5.75 billion dollars and these poor locals are just like what's happening over there uh, Wow, the cult's just taking up residence you know they did i i'm sure when they've heard that it was being bought they were like i don't know what's going on over there maybe it's just some wealthy billionaire yeah so once the property was bought the commune moved in and the commune i'll, I'll speak about this. these were like top-notch commune members. These were very loyal, hard-working followers. These were people who had, like, graduated the, the 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 sessions and had proven that they were hard, hard, hard workers. These were not the casual, like, Western people coming here for, like, to, to do crafts. These, these were people who were, like, proven disciples within the commune. Yeah. So, as soon as they moved in, they introduced themselves to their brand-new neighbors. And they're all wearing those red robes. I can only imagine how literally jarring that would be. Like, to
1: just, like, you're, like you said this little town that doesn't get too many visitors and then all of a sudden like this
0: stampede brightly colored people just comes walking in and they're just like hi yeah and this is like it's a couple hundred people I think I think uh, somewhere near 500 people were the first initial wave so it's 75 people living in this town and 500 people all wearing the same color come in and go hey we just bought the ranch like we're gonna be your neighbors like we're gonna we're gonna hang out so like good to meet ya and, and the t- way to get to the ranch, you had to go through Antelope. Like, it was the, it was, like, the thoroughway. Th- the like, that was where the main road connected. So yeah. it was just this poor town, like, just getting these waves of these red-robed people coming in. Jeez. So the red-robed followers said that all they wanted to do was farm their land, worship in peace, and be good neighbors. And that they immediately closed up all the nearby roadways to prevent people from coming into the ranch. <laughs> good what, neighbors. <laughs> yeah, that's what friendly neighbors do. <laughs> And the community, this, this commune, they got to work. So within the span of months, they had built infrastructure, roads, buildings, power lines, and sewer systems. Jesus. So the, the, the commune actually called this labor their worship. So their form of worship to Rajneesh was to build these things for him from scratch by hand. That's, they didn't get contractors and they built it all themselves that's insane
1: that's that's also unfathomable that's just like what it is mind-blowing
0: what they how do you even have
1: the skills like how do you know how like I, I would not know even know where to start like this is before youtube yeah what this are is they just like you know what i mean like how are they like how do they just
0: like know how to just I... build sewer systems and stuff were they good sewer systems i think so i think they were functioning Uh, And I think that these people were actually handpicked. These were people who probably came from these backgrounds. They were contractors. They were... Um, okay. City planners—they were people who had knowledge in these fields. Oh, okay. okay. And then okay. the rest of them were people who were willing to work. So just they had labors. like the yeah they were and but it was also this was um, gender equal laborers. So women were building. They were operating machinery. This was not just a bunch of men in red robes showing up and building things. This was just they looked like families. Like just regular young couples would come in. They're like, hi, hey, we're gonna do things, and then they would just both get into like different cranes and just start building. Okay. Sure. Yeah. That's yeah. Equal opportunity. Great. So within, as part of this worship, they even had their own shopping center to buy their lovely color coordinated attire. That's amazing. They had built. They built a worship hall. They built uh, functioning farms, and their own airport. All of this mind-boggling. What? Yeah. Yeah. An airport. An
1: airport. So now he can just come and go from. With his private jets,
0: Alana. This is a cult. Cool. I like (laughs) that. So, Rancho Rajneesh was then promptly renamed Rajneesh Puram. It could house up to 10,000 people. It was self sufficient. And shortly after, Rajneesh himself moved in on the 29th of August. That is unfucking believable. He literally. turnaround this they bought the place in June and he moved in in August like to build all
1: of that in that time is just like what yeah these At- people were motivated Dude, that's like an ant like just ants build like an ant hill it's just like I can only I just
0: don't even oh yeah oh yeah
1: my mind cannot so, comprehend
0: I know it just took a hold on because it's gonna get a lot weirder real quick <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Stay with on. me, man. i I'm Stay holding on with to me. my butt. I don't know if I can handle it. <laughs> we're, this is, we're just getting studded. Hmm. So then, the ranch was then voted in as a newly established city within Oregon. So not only was it just a ranch, it was voted in by 154 American citizens unanimously to be established as a brand new city within Oregon. That's all it takes? So Rajneesh Puram was a recognized city in Oregon. That's all it takes. Was 150 people? Because it was only a they, they only had 154 Americans. I guess. That's and there fair. was nobody opposing. Yeah. All right. Their neighbors are a, t- are a town of 75. Yeah. And there's and they're sufficient. So I think I, I think like as that's long as like it's, the criteria so low to just make a new city. I think this is also the 80s. Yeah. I think okay. It's there. a bit different now. It's probably a lot different now. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. You're and right. I think it's a lot different now because of this. I think a lot of a lot of legislator was put in place after this to stop this from happening, but it really was that easy. 154 people voted to make this a city, and the Oregon government was like, "Yeah, okay, I guess it's a city now. We've got a city called Reshnish Purim. All right. So, being its own city meant it could make its own laws. It also meant that it could have its own law enforcement and it could be completely self-governed. That is
1: so scary and terrifying, and I hate it, and I just, I don't like it. The level of
0: power that was acquired so quickly because Rajneesh Puram was like, 154, we like, we want it to be a city, we want our own law enforcement, we want our own government, we want to make our own rules. And they were like, yeah, I guess. They they hit the criteria. Jesus,
1: that is just absolutely, like you said, just terrifying.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That's so fast it happens so fast now the local community of antelope 19 miles away had reactions ranging from hostility to tolerance depending on the distance to the ranch <laughs> okay. so I could, Piram- <laughs> I could understand the hostility <laughs> yeah. they were like uh <laughs> what do you mean they have their own law enforcement so rajneesh Piran was very isolated isolationist naturally and it was very closed off from its neighbors, but the followings and the constant pouring in of new followers had to go through Antelope to to get to to puram and they came in in the hundreds. They would come in waves and waves and waves. Okay. And I'm sure it wasn't like they—they're not built for that. Like no, it completely changed the activity within the city. Um. And actually, they were while they were walking through, they would actually put up posters and feature religious teachings of Rajneesh through Antelope. Oh, no, nah. so this small re- retirement no. town who were like this sleepy, sleepy, sleepy town. Suddenly, so posters are going up of this random guy, and they're just like, "Yeah, like he's so cool. We're gonna go see him." And there are people coming in in waves in orange, red, purple robes, just coming in. And there's and it's just it's a retirement town. These people are just like I just want to be here in peace. I would shut down my roads. You can't get there anymore. Make your own roads. Yeah, it's it basically was like Woodstock had moved in next door. Was what it was. I I would be so upset, genuinely. Yeah. So the other thing to really keep in mind here is that this was right after Jonestown. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jonestown had happened a little bit before, and I'm gonna give you guys some context for that. So Jonestown is kind of like the pillar of unchecked religious movements and the disasters that can follow. Uh, for context, Jonestown was a religious commune in Guyana led by cult leader Jim Jones. Over 900 people died during Johnstown Yeah. in one day. So this also included U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan. Now, here's a weird twist of fate. Leo Ryan's eldest daughter, Shannon Joe Ryan, joined Rajneesh Puram as a follower that is very strange she changed s- her name to yeah she changed her name to Ma Amrita Pritam and married another commune member okay she was in it BB wow taken after her dad conversable well, her, her dad wasn't in uh, Jonestown he went there to stop it And he died as a result. Well, never mind. Cut that out. Yeah, Leo Ryan, Leo Ryan. he came to Guyana and he was like, this is really fucking weird. You guys are like, you guys are insane. Like, you cannot be doing this. And as he was leaving to go report his findings back to U.S. Congress, he was shot. Wow. And then to to basically to stop themselves from being persecuted for killing a congressman, the entire commune of Jonestown uh, Jonestown poisoned themselves. Wow. And 900 people died. So, in the wake of that, his daughter joining Rajneesh Pyram and changing her name and marrying into the community, it's it's very, very... It's very... very Ironic, I guess. Yeah, I was like, I don't even know the word, but ironic is the best, probably, word for it. Yeah. Conversely, though, uh, her sister, Patricia Ryan became a member and was later president of the board of the national cult awareness network wow they took two completely different paths yeah their other sister the third sister did work as an analyst for the cia okay and then later worked as a pastry chef so like very different (laughs) road paths wow so there you go so there's that there is the connection to jonestown but of course Antelope is very aware of Jonestown. The U.S. is very aware of Jonestown. It was a, it was a, it was a catastrophe, mm-hmm. and now here's there's suddenly another little commune. Everyone's dressing the same. Everyone's worshipping this guy. I'm sure the parallels were not wasted on anybody. So, Reshni Puran was very quick to dismiss any correlation with Jonestown, calling themselves life affirmative, while Jonestown was life negative. Hmm. So. At any rate, Rajneesh Piram and Antelope was a collision of two very different ideologies. So there was one that preached free love, open sexuality, active community, hard work, farming. It was a, it was a youth movement as well. Yeah. And the other was very nuclear families, Christian loving. And it was a, a community of retirees. It was people who had lived their lives. They had done their d- diligence. Yeah. And it's a very, very weird thing to like to slam. They're two very different ideologies just slamming into each other. I can only imagine the clash. Oh, yeah. So, naturally, locals of Antelope, including a man named Bill Bowerman, uh, who was also known as the founder of Nike, got involved with a group called A Thousand Friends of Oregon that actively petitioned for the removal of any buildings on the property as well as the sewer system. Okay. Their argument, yeah, so their argument was that big, muddy ranch, as it was previously known, was was agricultural land. But now the owners of Rajneesh Puram had converted it into a commercial city. So yes, they did farm work, but they had broken local ordinances by not using the land for its intended purposes. They were not following land use. Gotcha. Okay. So another group called Citizens for Constitutional Cities was formed to hinder ranch development. They even filed a petition that would order the uh, the Oregon governor to contain and control and remove the threat of invasion by an alien cult. Okay. Lawsuits were even filed to void the city altogether. But it was found that the city was owned legitimately and run by the Rejnish Foundation, so it could not be voided. Everything was above bar. Hmm. I... It was all above the board. Sure. <laughs> the owning was. Yeah. Not necessarily the land use. That's the only thing they can get them on right okay. now. Okay. So while all this is going on... Rajneesh is, the Rajneesh himself, Bhagwan Rajneesh, is still in his period of silence. So he's not talking all right. to anybody yeah. still. He only spoke to Sheila and a woman named Ma Yoga Vivek, who was also known as Christine Wolf. His only interactions with his follower was his daily Rolls Royce drive-by. So he would get in a Rolls Royce, all his followers would get up in a line all along the side of the road, and he would just drive by and wave at the ball. Wow, yeah, and it's uh, said that um he really, really did love Royals, Ro- Rolls Royce. He loved that kind of luxury, and he eventually owned ninety three in his lifetime
1: that is so much ma- that one of those cars is insanely
0: expensive. the fact ninety three is un- just nine that is like th- that is why buying this ranch was chump change to him, yeah, it is. But like it's cult, right? It's like I don't. I want to be tax exempt so I can keep all the money. I don't want to pay taxes. I don't want to pay for the betterment of the community. I want to use that money to buy myself ninety three Rolls Royces and Rolexes and everything.
1: No wonder he wanted a vow of silence. He just wanted to get a. Like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I made it. I got all the money. I'm gonna go just live in my lap of luck, my life of luxury. Now, you know, like it's just, it's yeah, yeah. That's
0: it. So now. They've, this this small town of Oregon, little Antelope, Oregon, is making a huge fuss about this very strange thing that's moved in next to them and has now established itself as a city, question mark? And now people are looking at Rejneesh Purim and it's in the hot seat. Yeah. So they're like, what's happening? What is this? Is this a cult? What are they doing? Like, they're all we're just worshiping this guy who drives Rolls Royces down and, like, every day they have to greet him and everyone's wearing a picture of him around their, like, their necks. Like, yeah. What is this? Is this another Jonestown? <sighs> So the government begins hindering Rajneesh Purim's growth and development, mostly to the the credit of a thousand friends of Oregon. So Sheila, lovely Sheila, comes up with a plan. If I can't build and develop my city because of land use, why not just buy a pre-made city and like convert one that already exists? Oh, no, I see where that's going. Whoa, look at that. There's one 19 miles away called Antelope, and it's got a lot of property for sale. I feel like Antelope's gonna hate this. So Rajneesh Puram begins buying out all the properties in Antelope. So the population was a, was 40 to f- uh, 75 people at the time, and most of the property in Antelope was for sale at an incredibly cheap rate because it's a small, sleepy retirement town. Jeez. So they began buying up all the land, and they took over several businesses and essentially started holding this town hostage. That's awful. So the idea was that they were going to hold Antelope in this state. They were just going to hold on to this property until the state consented to officially declaring that Rajneeshpuram was a real city, mm-hmm. it could do what it wanted, it just wanted the recognition and as soon as the, uh, the Oregon government acknowledged that it was, a, it was a fair and legit city and they would get out of their business they were going to hold Antelope hostage. Yeah, that does. I don't think that's a good idea You know, at the time I'm sure it seemed like a great idea, they were like we're just going to have this city until you give us our own and then we'll leave. It's like a terrorist act and, like, and locals were moving in, right? So, like, uh, the followers, the, the cult followers, they were moving into Antelope. They were living in these houses alongside these reti- retirees. And they were still following the sex guru's acts. So they were, like, sunbathing in the park naked. And they were, you know, they took over the local cafe. They took over the schoolhouse. They took over everything. Wow. And these these 75 citizens are just like what the fuck is going on get out of our town and they're like no we live here so the locals of antelope retaliated how so they began defacing rajneesh property oh no that's not gonna be good (laughs) they began spray printing graffiti on rajneesh property they also handed out anti bagwan paraphernalia including posters t-shirts and like little signs um, they would also walk around with guns and randomly shoot rounds into the air as a form of intimidation. Is that allowed? Uh, this is America, BB. It's, <laughs> it's a gray area. Like, this is the 80s. America in the 80s. <laughs> I think a lot of things were allowed that shouldn't be allowed. But they would do that. The atmosphere was described as hateful and toxic. Yeah, that I sounds... can't imagine why. That sounds awful. Oh, my god. So... These Rajnishis who had volunteered to move into Antelope while they were holding the town hostage were now being intimidated and terrified, so they retaliated. This, so the Rajneeshis...
1: <laughs> this <laughs> is just a fire war, dude. It's like a flame war. It's literally just we'll fight fire with
0: fire. You got fire, well, we have more fire. Pretty much, it's 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 like they started doing this, so we started doing this. And like, well, they were doing this, so we're gonna do this now. And it's yeah. like, guys, everyone just calm the fuck this down. This will never, stop. this will never end this way. Yeah. So, Reshnishis are retaliating now. So they would begin shining spotlights into residents' homes of an evening while they were sleeping. And they also set up cameras on the street and paparazzi photo shoot uh, people mowing their lawns, sitting on their porch, and harassing them through, like, photo shoots. That's such, like, a 21st century, like, thing to do. That's crazy, actually. It's like they didn't, they weren't using guns. They were like, we're just going to get in your business and, like, catalog what you're doing and, like, make you feel like you're not, like, safe. It, it's god, a psychological like war. warfare. It's a cold war, and it was fought with money, fear, and anger. It's nobody like went to strike a blow, but it is a very, very, very tense environment. Jesus. So Antelope realizes that they are vastly outnumbered. There are seventy-five, and there are close to, I think, at this point, a thousand five hundred followers in Rajneesh Puram, and they're moving into Antelope. Oh my god, I hate that. So Antelope is like, guys, I got it. Let's disincorporate. Let's destroy our city. That, that'll that teach them. <laughs> so they tried to disincorporate, which basically means they attempted to dissolve Antelope as a city. So it was basically just going to be free land at this point. And the, the city of Antelope would no longer be recognized as a city in Oregon. How does that accomplish anything, though? Like, what is that? Well, it means that they can't hold the red, like they basically they lose their poker chip the Rajnishis do like they're not mm-hmm. gonna have like this city that they're holding hostage they're not gonna be able to take over the city yeah they're, they're they're not gonna get their demands met that's fair so yeah they the the Antelopians, I'm gonna call them they claim that it would be better to be dead than red <laughs> Wow. Wow! Oh my
1: god, these 75 people are just like, no, we will die. (laughs) We will die before we wear
0: those red robes, (laughs) goddammit. This really was a war. Oh my god. So, 1982. Antelope had its vote whether or not to disincorporate. There were only a hundred registered voters. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. There (laughs) There were only a hundred registered voters of the entire city of of Antelope, including Rajneeshis. Oh my gosh. The final tally of this vote was yes 42, no 55. Antelope was here to stay. Wow. Yeah. But just because the Rajneeshis won the battle didn't mean things were getting any easier. On July 29th, 1983, a hotel owned by Rajneesh called the Hotel Rajneesh in Portland, Oregon, was bombed what? a hotel owned by Rajneesh was bombed okay that's getting big so the bombing was actually um, done by an extremist named Stephen Paul Pastor and he planted and exploded three pipe bombs inside the hotel which only injured Pastor nobody died he only accomplished in hurting himself I mean good we don't need that kind of stuff here yeah, yeah, the attack caused a hundred and eighty thousand dollars in damages. Okay. Pastor was arrested, but released on bail, and fled Oregon. So All right, disappeared. And he just caused um, a lot of damage, hurt himself, and was like peace. Yeah, he was like so, so He was later found in Colorado and returned to Oregon to face trial for arson. Mm. Uh, he was sentenced to twenty years in prison, but only served four years. Seems fair. Makes sense to me. Pastor was then, uh, sorry, Pastor was also the lead suspect in two other bombings in 1984, one of a Hindu and one of a Vendanta, Vedanta religious site in Seattle. He was not affiliated with Antelope. Okay. He was part of another religious extremist organization. I can't remember which one off the top of my head, but this was nothing. This had nothing to do with Antelope and like uh, Rashid Piram. This was just because he hated. Eastern meditation practices, and he was like, I'm gonna blow their stuff up. Okay. But of course, all of this didn't come to light at the time. This was just a, our hotel got bombed, and the city of Antelope was real pissed off at us. Yeah. So the cult took it personally. In retaliation to the bombing, Rashnish Piram began bringing in weaponry to the commune. Oh no. Yeah. Shooting exercises began to mingle with meditation. Oh my god. It was also at this time, more and more Rejnishis registered to vote. And they actually managed to take control of the Antelope City Council. That's crazy. So now, the Rajnishis have... They control Rajnish Puram, the ranch. And they now control Antelope at a government level. That's just awful. Okay. Well. Um, Yeah, it's... It's the, the scale of this. The scale of this all. They just weren't gonna stop. They set their sights on something and they are like, nope, we're not gonna lose this. It's, yeah, stubbornness. For lack of It's pure stubbornness. Like, they wanted something and Reganish wanted something. And he's not used to being told, no, he cannot. Yeah. And he took that personally. Yeah, literally. Yeah. So, September 18th, 1984. A vote was held in what was left of Antelope. And the city's name officially changed to Rajneesh so now they have two cities one pseudo city that hasn't been confirmed by the Oregon government Mm -hmm. and one pre-existing city that has had its name changed with this vote they also changed street names store names and they set up a peace force to maintain their way of life a peace force yeah it was an armed militia
1: yeah I was gonna say I'm
0: like that doesn't sound yeah With this peace force, they began bringing their weapons into town and started intimidating Antelope locals. Fun. Okay. Any protesters against this peace force and Rejnish and any of this voting that was going on, they were arrested for menacing. So anyone who said anything bad about what was going on was put in prison. That is, like, actually terrifying that he just had the power to do that, because I'm sure that was defined very loosely. Yeah. It is terrifying the amount of, of power they so quickly acquired. Yeah. And it was because they decided to take over an empty ranch and a small town there. Nobody had anything like they, they had no power. It was 75 people against 1,500. Yeah. It, it, was, it was a hostile takeover. That's insane. As a result, gun sales in nearby towns skyrocketed because they were afraid that what was happening to Antelope was going to happen to them. Yeah. So now Sheila begins appearing on national television. And that brings a whole new spotlight to what's going on. Mm-hmm. So she began talking to various news outlets and daytime show hosts. Basically being like, hey guys, we're Rajneesh Purim. We're a commune set up in Oregon. Like, these are our goals. These are our demands. And we d- deserve to be heard. These are our goals. <laughs> these are our demands. <laughs> yeah." Yep. So she had, uh, allegedly, according to her, she had explicit instructions to be provocative and to share the Rajnishi way of life, Okay. as well as to draw attention to the cult's demands and the fact that they were being ignored by the Oregon government. Wow. Okay. All of this, she said, were direct orders from bu- the bug one. Wow.
1: You know, use the sex we, we preached that
0: sells. Be, yeah. Be provocative and then just preach our cause. But also, like, am I you know like it's one of those again where it's like any any press is good press like if, if spotlights you know, they'll either find sympathizers or they'll make it a lot worse for themselves and it yeah. was a little bit of both yeah Jesus on top of all of this press and intimidation and a hostile takeover of a town there were also issues with bringing in international followers into Oregon.
1: Okay.
0: Kind of similar to early issues that they had with visas being granted to see Rajneesh in India. It was like if they someone declared that that was the purpose of their visit, they would get turned away. All right. um, well, the, the commune retaliated to this and said, you cannot deny someone entry into somewhere f- when they simply wish to pay respects to the head of their religion. Which meant that Rajneesh's teachings were now officially considered a religion. Ew. We're in cult territory! Yeah,
1: oh my god. We got a city, we got a religion, we got just Mm. too much going on for my
0: liking. Yes. They called it Rajneeshism. 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 I like it. It's very hard to say. Rajneeshism. It was now an established religion. And Sheila said as much on national television, that it was no longer a philosophy, but a full-blown religion and a way of life. Man, okay. All right. But suddenly, there's a lot more attention and interest in Rajneeshism and Raj, uh, Rajneesh Piram. So communes actually started popping up all over the world. So they had some in Australia. They had some in Europe. They had some in South America. They had other places, all like Canada. They had these little tiny communes that were popping up all over the world. And they would create like these distribution centers, essentially, for these teachings. All right. Book sales for all of Rajneesh's books went through the roof, either from interest or just simple curiosity. Wow. Okay. There were also reports now that the cult activity was getting a bit questionable. Yeah. More so. Even more so, I should guess I should say. So, there were reports within uh, the commune around this time that they actually had started censoring mail. So, any mail that came into Rajneesh Piram, they would actually sift through and sort. And they would keep their followers in the dark in that regard. They also, apparently, there were reports of arranged marriages. Wow, again, another thing we were trying to get away from. Yeah, keep a, put that in your head again. Hold on to that one. That's another <laughs> little piece of the puzzle that's worth holding on to for later. So the Oregon Attorney General became aware that things were going down yeah. over over in Reshnish Piram. Uh, and based on some of the reports that he was receiving, began pursuing them on the basis of separation of church and state. We're like, if you want to be a city, you can't be a religion. You gotta pick one. And if you want to be a religion, you can't be a city. Yeah. Uh, There was also arguments about the newfound police force carrying military-grade weaponry. Uh, And there were also investigations into the Rajneesh public school that they had set up in the old school building. Yeah. Uh, Debates about what the curriculum was being taught. Yeah. Or if teachers were allowed to mingle personal beliefs into their lessons and wardrobe while they were teaching so, you know, not so different from today. Jesus. I <laughs> just, uh, yeah. Alright, well, good, good yeah. thing someone's stepping in at this point. Yeah, so at, at the, uh, on top of all of this as well, they also started looking into who had the power to appoint these positions. So who had authority to dictate over government positions? Who had uh, authority to assign police forces? Who had authority to assign school curriculums? Teachers? Congressmen? the Attorney General Office decided to pursue the case on the grounds that the cities of Rajneesh and Rajneesh Piram were unconstitutional. Wow. So this really, like, kind of set a course for, like, a lot of legislation
1: that I'm I'm sure we, like, see today as far as when you want to make a change. Like you said, if you want city,
0: a change to your curriculum in school, like... I I really think that this, this thing that happened in Oregon set the precedence for so much... And we'll we'll kind of talk a little about a a little bit in part two, but it's like these were really easy things to do because nobody ever once thought that it would be this easy to accomplish this. Yeah, no one no one saw these
1: things and thought, you know, I'm going to exploit this to the fullest extent to the way that this guy did.
0: Yeah, like everyone's like, oh, yeah, nobody's going to vote in 154 people aren't going to vote in a city because nobody 154 people can't afford this amount of land. Not just that, but like but people people aren't that crazy. No one would do
1: that. They're good American yeah. Christian citizens as most people thought, you know, but then like this cult
0: comes in and Yeah, and they're just like, We want to do this. And they were like, wait, hang on a second. And I and I wonder, like, if they had been a Christian cult, if they had been more compatible with their neighbors, yes, for lack of a better word. Exactly. How far would it have gone then? Would it have been another Jonestown? Where everything was fine and everyone was complying. It's was like, well, at least they're Christians. At least they're, they're a good old Christian value yeah. kind of place. And then things had spiraled. But I think because this was such a difference in ideology, the red flags were noticed much sooner. Like, not to, you know, play on the <laughs> color red, but the, the red flags quite literally were seen coming. So I wonder if that prevented a lot of bad, like, from it getting worse. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it and did. And if, yeah, and like, if, if this had been a Christian organization, a Christian cult, had it would it have would it have gotten much worse without people interfering because they're like well yeah. at least they're at least good christian citizens yeah i don't know it's something to think about it is something to think about so the oregon government passed several bills that were intended to stop or slow the development of freshnish pyramid one such law was hb 3080 which stopped the distribution of revenue for any city whose legal status had been challenged such as use of land and because Rashnish was currently being pursued for not using land use to its intended purpose, Rashnish Piram was the only city this law ever impacted. Wow. Uh, the government of Oregon at the time, Vic Atia, Vic I think is how you say it, stated that since their neighbors didn't like him, they should just leave Oregon. All right. I mean, all right. That's a solution. Uh yeah. U.S. Senator Mark Hatfield was very, uh, quote unquote, very concerned about how this religious cult is endangering the way of life for a small agricultural town and is a threat to public safety. Good. Okay. At least he acknowledges it. It's got eyes on it. Yeah. So amidst all this, a noticeable shift was occurring within Rishish Piram. Uh Bhagwan Rajneesh took a full step out of the spotlight. So really the only time people ever saw him was his Rolls Royce drive-by. But even then he didn't do his sitting and reading with the with the public. Yeah. Like he, he he really stayed in his room, except when he went out on his in his Rolls-Royce. Hmm. Conversely, Sheila took a huge step forward, shaping herself into a noticeable leader so she began doing talks solo talks where she would say Bhagwan told me this Bhagwan told me this this is what we have decided upon as a joint leadership we're going to be doing this we're going to be doing this wow so many followers came to revere Sheila nearly the same way that they revered Rajneesh. so now we have two cult leaders That's- this is unheard of yeah i this is the only cult that i know that has such a clear du- dual cult leader
1: status yeah like where she was just so able to step in and be like I am an extension of him
0: and people were just like okay yep we accept you fully and he didn't do anything to like say no 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 you're you're overstepping your bounds he was like yeah go yeah like be, th- be the one in the spotlight I'll be over here on my Rolls Royce enjoying my you know my caviar and my, my bagels mm-hmm. You go into the public, you be the public figure, and you tell my teachings the way I want you to. And she would. I mean, it's a good system for him, but like I said, to just sit back and do
1: nothing. like I'm sure he did want to kind of, like, he was sick, he wanted to just sit back and
0: relax. Yeah, and he is older than her. I think he's ten years older than her. Yeah, so... So, because of the way that the power kind of shifted, her personal home on the commune grew in size... And it really became her hot seat of power. Wow. So, people would come to like, uh, kind of revere her home as much as they did with the Rajneesh. Wow. So, she in her inside her home, she would command a small group of lieutenants who would be at her beck and call at any time of the day and night. Every night, she would meet with the Raj, uh, with Rajneesh, and then simply return and uh, sorry, then return and simply convey what was said during the meeting. She was like, he told me this, so this is what we're going to do. Wow. Nobody else was allowed to join in on these nightly meetings, though, and everyone had to take Sheila at her word. Yeah, okay. I guess, I mean... They did! Like, he would have said something, though, had she been wrong, right?
1: Like, you think. Like, he's he's probably, like, watching the news and, like, watching the rest of everything, so if she
0: misconstrued... Yeah, and it's... This is a a debate that comes up later, is how much was he aware. Yeah. And I don't think it... Like, we'll probably never know, but I, I have... I have a thought. Yeah. But yeah, like, and b- but because Sheila had been at his side for so long, she had been an established lieutenant, she was the one that kind of pioneered Rajneesh Purim, mm-hmm. people respected her. They were like, yeah, like, if Sheila says it, it must be true. Yeah, I mean, fair. And see? So, yeah. yeah. And now that she was the full-blown voice of Bhagwan Rajneesh, she was now tasked with ensuring that the cult's demands were met. That's a big hat to hold. And, yeah, and she had plans. And that is where we're going to end part one. Ooh, okay. I didn't expect the cult to change hands like that and... It's so strange, isn't it? Like a full shift of power where the cult leader's just kind of swapped for a bit, but they're both still there. Mm-hmm. They're both present. They're both in. Like It's not like she killed him. That's exactly it. It's not like the
1: power shifted completely where like she, you know, dethroned him. It's just like, nah, you can just like yeah. borrow it for a little bit because I just want to be in the background. But they, like if I ever wanted it back, I could just come in and just like totally
0: take it back. Yeah, and she was fiercely loyal to him. Like, I think she even is to this day. Like, she is very much like, whatever he said goes, and I was going to, like, do whatever I could to make it. So it's like, she loved him. Mm -hmm. She loved his teachings. She was never trying to be against him. Yeah. But she had all this power suddenly, and he just was kind of like a shadow leader in a weird way. Yeah. And I've never seen a cult like this. It's so strange. Yeah but it's so cool and i'm and we're we're that that's the entire setup baby we are in oregon we have our two cult leaders we have our commune and now it can only go one way wow all right well i'm very excited for part
1: 2 ma'am part part 1 was the perfect setup <laughs>
0: uh, so hold on to your breakfast cuz it's going to get <laughs> it's going to get spicy oh god all right <laughs> uh well while we promptly set up for part two do you want to
1: tell them where they can find us ma'am absolutely uh, if you want to find us you can uh, on any socials you can
0: find us on twitter instagram youtube at spookery podcast sure can you can also send us a gmail at 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 gmail.com we there. we're there we're 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 live we're well we're kicking heck yeah um just check in on yeah, your girls you, to, you know ask us how we're doing yeah Right now, I'm doing great, but don't eat for this next part. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's next week. One don't spoil eat. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yes, I will put that out there. I'll also say at the beginning of the episode, just be careful when you, when you decide to eat during the next part the episode. It's not a trigger warning. It's just, just don't, just don't, just don't. Just don't. Uh, uh, yeah, if you guys are enjoying it so far, think about leaving us a five star review. We would greatly appreciate it. You can also send it to us directly if your preferred medium doesn't do those kind of reviews. We'll we're collecting them for something special. Heck yeah. Uh, but yeah. Until next time, ma'am. Stay spooky. Bye bye. Goodbye.
1: Goodbye. Bye.
0: Life is like a hurricane here. In Rajneesh Purim. <laughs> 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 That's so funny. Oh my God. Uh.